Hello and welcome to the Minimum Competence episode for Tuesday, August 22nd, 2023. I'm your host for today, Andrew Leahy, a tax and technology attorney from New Jersey. In today's episode, we have a peek at the law firm of the future. New Jersey suffers from a judge shortage. Activision will sell its cloud gaming business. SCOTUS asks to review high school diversity program. And Column Tuesday, where I make the case for growing the hydrogen fuel cell economy through tax policy. Let's grow our knowledge fuel cell economy by reading today's legal news. On this day in legal history, August 22nd, 1996, welfare as we knew it was ended and millions of folks living in precarity had the rug ripped out from under their feet. The so-called welfare-to-work bill signed by President Bill Clinton in August of 1996 was a contentious piece of legislation that aimed to move individuals from welfare to employment, premised on the flawed notion that those unable to work were simply unwilling to work. The downsides of this reform were significant. Critics, including three assistant secretaries at the Department of Health and Human Services who resigned in protest, argued that the law destroyed the federal safety net, leading to increased poverty and lower income for single mothers. Some individuals were moved into homeless shelters, and states were left free to eliminate welfare entirely. Specifically, while the intention was to shift mothers from welfare to work, many found that they were not earning enough to thrive, and others were pushed off welfare roles due to logistical challenges such as lack of childcare or failure to receive notification. Despite a decline in welfare and poverty rates in the late 1990s, the negative impacts of the reform on the most vulnerable populations raised serious concerns about the true success of the legislation. In the full light of history, it is clear the reform didn't achieve its stated goal of ending poverty, and not by a long shot. While the reform initially seemed to be working, with unemployment dipping and poverty falling, later research has cast doubt on its efficacy. The reform reduced welfare roles and increased employment, but it also reduced the incomes of the poor, especially the poorest of the poor. Transitioning from welfare to work may have gotten people jobs, but those people didn't actually come out ahead monetarily, as welfare would have paid better than work did. There was also an increase in deep poverty, the fraction living below 50% of the poverty line. The availability of money as a kind of slush fund for states created an incentive for states to discourage potential beneficiaries from applying. Critics argue that the legislation got virtually every technical detail wrong, giving states too much flexibility and creating perverse incentives for states to seek alternative spending routes for money earmarked for the poor. Even many conservatives have expressed concerns about the state incentives created by the block grant. The initial assessments of the reform were overly optimistic, and there's broad consensus outside the law's core supporters that something went deeply wrong. The failure to allow people to apply for aid, the atrophy of work programs, and the diversion of funds to other programs were unintended consequences that have led to a call for change virtually since the bill was signed into law. According to Bloomberg Law, the law firm of the foreseeable future will be different in three critical ways. First, working with AI. Second, evaluation and education. And third, in structure. First, AI will be embedded at every level of an attorney's work, augmenting individual tasks and transforming the delivery of legal services at the practice level. This will radically optimize tasks, allowing attorneys to focus on unique work and create opportunities to scale. In other words, more work will be dumped on the plates of junior attorneys. Second, AI will change the skills that clients expect from legal counsel, emphasizing complex problem solving and strategic thinking over research and writing. It will also refine how lawyers are trained, calling for better mentoring and teaching, and will be central to how both attorneys and clients consume information. Third, the structure of law firms may change, with exceptions to the prohibition of ownership by non-lawyers pointing to forces that may lead to significant changes in the future. Law firms' limited ability to invest in technology may be a disadvantage, but unlocking efficiencies with AI could change the landscape. The future law firm may be able to deliver services at scale with high leverage, potentially transforming the traditional structure and approach of legal practices. These changes reflect a future shaped by current forces, particularly the integration of AI into the legal field. A pure editorial note here, this is me speaking for myself. I'm always skeptical of claims that technology will radically disrupt entrenched power structures. 
I had to put money on how AI changes law firm culture and the legal field, it will be to redound to the benefit of those in power now first, and benefits to labor will take a long time to trickle down to junior attorneys and paralegals. New Jersey is facing a severe judge shortage, freezing nearly 4,000 divorce proceedings and around 4,700 other family law cases. Some counties are entirely blocked from holding any divorce trials due to the lack of judges. The delays for contested divorces are sometimes measured in years, far exceeding the state's guideline of resolving cases within 12 months of filing. The shortage has persisted due to New Jersey's unique courtesy appointment system, where any senator can block the appointment of a judge in their home county, and accelerated retirements have worsened the situation. New Jersey currently has 57 vacancies, nearly double the system's manageable limit of 30. The backlog has broad spillover effects affecting other civil litigants and leading to dire consequences for the injured and elderly. Political obstacles, including the aforementioned courtesy appointment system and increased partisanship, have contributed to the dearth of judges. Despite recent confirmations, the situation is described as a judicial crisis and a resolution appears unlikely until at least November. The shortage has led to human tragedies, including difficulties in securing child passports, enrolling children in school due to custody battles, and forced cohabitation with abusive partners. Activision Blizzard, the maker of Call of Duty, will sell its streaming rights to Ubisoft Entertainment to gain approval from Britain's antitrust regulator for its $69 billion sale to Microsoft. The original acquisition announced in early 2022 was blocked by the Competition and Markets Authority, or CMA, over concerns that Microsoft would dominate the emerging cloud gaming market. CMA maintained its decision to veto the deal, leading to a restructured agreement. Under the new terms, Microsoft cannot release Activision games exclusively on its Xbox cloud gaming service or control licensing terms for rival services. Ubisoft will acquire cloud streaming rights for Activision's existing and new games for the next 15 years, except in Europe. The CMA will review the new proposal with a Phase 1 process ending on October 18th, possibly followed by a longer Phase 2 examination. The deal marks a significant concession by Microsoft and a win for the CMA, reflecting its tough stance on tech deals since Brexit. Ubisoft shares were up more than 7% following the news. A parents group backed by a conservative legal organization has asked the U.S. Supreme Court to consider whether an admissions policy at Thomas Jefferson High School for Science and Technology in Virginia is racially discriminatory. The policy adopted in 2020 was aimed at diversifying the student body and was considered race neutral. It eliminated a standardized test, capped the number of students from each middle school, and guaranteed seats for top students from each. Following these changes, the percentage of Asian American students fell while the share of Black and Hispanic students increased. A group called Coalition for TJ sued, claiming the policy violated the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. While a U.S. District Judge sided with the parents, the 4th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals reversed the decision. The Supreme Court's response is pending. And look at that. It's Column Tuesday, and on a Tuesday this week. The Inflation Reduction Act of 2022, which includes a provision for transitioning industry away from coal and natural gas, also introduces a so-called 45V tax credit for hydrogen produced with low greenhouse gas output. This means that the hydrogen must be produced by clean electricity to qualify for the tax credit. While some advocate for maintaining or enhancing this restriction, others worry that it may stifle the hydrogen industry's growth. In my column, I suggest that the solution lies in better funding and streamlining the clean electricity sector and its related tax credit regime. The EU has already implemented a renewable hydrogen regulatory framework that emphasizes connecting new hydrogen generation systems to new renewable energy systems. The U.S. must also recognize that clean hydrogen's fate is tied to clean energy systems like solar and wind. Uncertainty in the clean energy sector, particularly regarding tax credit eligibility, may be slowing down the production of clean electricity systems. To foster the renewable hydrogen industry, the U.S. must streamline and clarify the clean electricity tax credit system, possibly aligning with the EU's approach. The policy should focus on locating and clarifying bottlenecks in existing regulatory frameworks and tax incentives, 
redirecting investments earmarked for hydrogen to grow the clean economy and thereby grow the hydrogen economy. And with that, I thank you so much for listening to Minimum Competence, your daily news podcast for lawyers. If you're looking for more than Minimum Competence, links to further reading on all the topics touched on today are in the show notes. If you have any questions or story suggestions, you can find us on Mastodon on the esq.social instance. I'm at Andrew and my co-host Gina is at Gina. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the hosts and do not represent those of any organization we may be affiliated with. Nothing here should be construed as legal advice because it is not legal advice. Reviews go a long way towards helping new listeners to find our show. If you have a moment and can leave a rating or review on your podcast player, we'd sure appreciate it. And if you know someone that might be interested in a story we cover, consider sending them the episode. Minimum Competence is available at minimumcomp.com and wherever it is you get your finely crafted podcasts. We'll see you back here tomorrow. And until then, remember, we're living through a time so weird that a guy testifying before Congress that there are aliens isn't in the top five weirdest things to happen in any given week. 